Flannery O'Connor was one of the best short story writers of the 20th century. She lived in what she called the Christ-haunted South. She was an outsider, a Catholic in Baptist country, and she spent most of her life confined to home. She had lupus. But she was a gifted observer of life around her in the American South in the early 60s. Now she wrote about people, people other people would recognize. And it's hard to read one of her stories without saying of one person or another, I know someone just like that. Now her characters live in a time and place when their dialogue is peppered with the N-word, and for that reason, sadly, few people are reading her stories today. But one of Flannery O'Connor's best-known stories is Revelation, and it's about Mrs. Ruby Turpin and an hour she spends in her doctor's waiting room and what happens after she goes home. Mrs. Turpin is a fine, upstanding Christian lady who can identify and place everyone in the waiting room. Now, she doesn't know any of them, but she knows them. And just by looking, she can decide who they are and what they're worth. And when she's not chatting with the one woman in the room, she's in her head trying to figure out if Jesus had given her just one choice when he made her, and she had to choose between being black and white trash, which would be better? Well, she thought it would be best to ask to wait until there was another choice, but if she had to choose, if she had to choose, she would choose to be a black woman because there were good blacks. Some of them actually owned land. Not white trash, especially not those who had failed in life and had to rent. Now, as often happens in a Flannery O'Connor story, something apocalyptic happens in the middle. Something the characters couldn't have predicted, something the reader doesn't expect. And something happens in that waiting room. And Mrs. Turpin takes it as a message for her from Jesus in the middle of that crisis. So later when she's at home, she has a little talk with Jesus. And she wants to know why that message arrived and arrived how it did. And as she stands looking out the barn window over the pig parlor, Jesus answers her. As she looks, the familiar highway down the hill becomes a bridge, a bridge between heaven and earth, passing through fields of fire. And here's how Mrs. Turpin sees it. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of blacks in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband, had always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. They were marching behind the others with great dignity. They alone were singing on key, and yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away.
The dirty are clean, the blacks wear the white robes of saints and martyrs, the white and the good, even their virtues are being burned away. Hannah sings out for everyone to hear, don't dare talk pretentiously, not a word of boasting ever, for God knows what's going on. God takes the measure of everything that, that happens. The well-fed are out in the streets begging for crusts, while the hungry are getting second helpings. Now, in a couple of Sundays, we'll be in Advent, and we'll hear these words on Mary's lips, words about God turning the world upside down. And why is Hannah so excited? God has answered her prayer. She has a son. After years of trying, waiting, weeping, enduring mockery and bullying. And remember in the ancient world, a woman is not a person and has no worth unless she can bear children and unless she can give her husband and his family a son. But Hannah seems to think Giving birth to a son hasn't just changed her life. The birth is a sign that God means to change the world. In gratitude and because of this vision, she will give her son to God. And as it will turn out, her son will grow up and shape the nation's life for generations to come. Samuel will become a great prophet, a great priest, and a kingmaker. He'll engineer the rise of two kings and the downfall of one of them. Hannah is sometimes called a prophet. And like the prophets, she sees God at work. She sees a pattern of behavior, God's behavior, toward God's covenant people and the world. And if God is in the business of lift, lifting up people like her, doing great things through the humble of the earth, then watch out. Especially the people who think they're on the top of the world, watch out. And so these words of the old evangelist Billy Sunday sum up just about any prophetic word in the Bible. The world is wrong side up. It needs to be turned upside down in order to be right side up. Now in our gospel today, Jesus leaves the temple after days of teaching and arguing and speaking prophetic words. And on their way out, one of his disciples stopped, overawed by the mass of the temple. What large stones, what large buildings. You know, the temple was so massive that it just overwhelmed people. But it was very carefully built, with each course of stones a few centimeters recessed, so that you could look up and not get the feeling that it was going to fall down on you. And why was that important? Because in places, it was ten stories high. Some of the footings went down twenty meters to find bedrock. When Herod set out to expand the temple, he flattened the, the hilltop and stretched it out to an area equivalent to 29 football fields. The Western Wall, and a part of the Western Wall is the only part that remains intact from that temple. The Western Wall is almost 500 meters long. 
The smallest building stones that have been excavated are over two tons. And the largest known, partially excavated stone is estimated to weigh 570 tons. And it's all dry stone construction. The stones hold together. There's no mortar. The stones hold together by weight alone. But Jesus says, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. And they will be, not 40 years later, when the next generation of disciples are repeating Jesus' words and writing them down. So Jesus leads his friends out of the city across to the hill opposite the temple and sits down and watches. And they wonder if he's waiting for it all to happen. Four of them, including Andrew, want to know if there will be any warning before Jesus' words come true. And Jesus tells them, many strange and terrible things will happen. We just read the first few sentences of Jesus' prophecies in Mark 13. But we know the first generations of Christians died after seeing many of the things Jesus talked about come true, but without seeing Jesus return as they so hoped he would. And in every generation since then, there have been Christians who have looked at the world and concluded that their time is the time when all the things Jesus warned about were about to happen. But what if Jesus, as prophet, is describing and interpreting the way things are and where things are going, that Jesus is identifying patterns, patterns of human behavior and patterns of God's behavior. And the pattern God follows is always toward life, new life. The pattern we follow so often leads toward death and destruction. Jesus describes the pain to come, the pain that is always in the world, the pain that is in our hearts if we love the world we live in even half as much as God does. Jesus says that pain is birth pangs, labor pains, Hannah's pain, Mary's pain. The world is wrong side up. It needs to be turned upside down in order to be right side up. Now, I was told many years ago that only Newfoundlanders can call the island of Newfoundland the rock. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I take the warning very seriously. The island of Newfoundland is a rock, a huge rock in the ocean. And for millions of years, it has endured the worst the winds and the waves can throw against it. How deep are its foundations? Last week, a seismologist, an earthquake scientist, said the latest storms, last week's Tuesday-Wednesday storms, shook the entire island of Newfoundland. I just can't imagine how that could be. That even one day, that rock could crumble and tumble into the sea. Now, 
we've always known that. Scientists will tell us that can happen. It will take millions of years, they predict, but it can happen. If you go to places in Newfoundland, you will see what the Rockies will look like in another million years or two. You'll walk on stone dust that is boulders in the Rockies. It can happen, but we, we don't believe we will ever see it, and yet a storm so fierce can shake the whole rock down to its foundations. And as we see these storms and we recognize the volatility of the climate and the extremes of heat and cold and drought and winds and wildfires, don't they seem to echo biblical warnings? Is the end really drawing near? When the things we think will last forever, like Mrs. Turpin's favored relationship with Jesus, like the world Hannah knows, a world that is so unjust, like a temple that looks like miracles built it, founded on bedrock and big enough to keep God inside. When the things we think will last forever, like the solid rock in the sea, are already shaking, falling, fading away. When the storms falling on our heads sound like apocalypse. And when each day's news makes us wonder if the world really is wrong side up, what can we do? I wish I could say, cheer up, things aren't so bad after all, and that God will protect us from change and decay and loss. Hannah and Jesus tell us today that shaking things up, turning things around, that's what God does. Which is not to say God causes every shake-up or downfall or flip, but God doesn't ignore them. God doesn't leave us alone in them to be afraid and confused and to lose hope. God invites us to open our eyes to seek and find where God is at work and where God calls and equips us to work, to nurture new life, to tear down the walls that separate, alienate, isolate people, to cooperate with God's creating, saving, renewing work. God gives us the vision to know the difference between death throes and labor pains. Some things we cling to must go, and some things we fear won't go away. Those things may, be even, may even be signs of birth, of life in the shadow of death. But even in the midst of his direst warnings about the patterns of human behavior and what we create and destroy when we follow them, even in the midst of his direst warnings, Jesus reminds us of God's way of behaving toward the world God created, toward the world God loves even more than we do. Amen.